Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, February 12th, 2021, Abraham Lincoln's birthday. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Okay, uh, we don't have that much to say about uh, yesterday's impeachment proceedings because they were they were largely a uh, a recapitulation of what we found out on the first two days uh, with the Democrats trying to make an effort to to sort of complete the picture by trying to describe where Trump was and what Trump was doing uh, while the riot was going on, uh, but of course only really being able to do so suggestively because we don't know what Trump was doing. Uh, and uh, we only know that he should have known or could have known everything that was going on, but we don't know that he did because we there were they focused on messages from the Capitol to the president publicly by Republicans saying do something, particularly Mike Gallagher of uh, Wisconsin, uh, representative uh, Republican representative, but we don't know that he did, and so. Uh, there was that, and then the other thing I thought was weak was the uh, the the whole world is watching, and it's uh, it's bad what we've done because that is not how 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 the world reacts to our internal political uh, difficulties and circumstances is not grounds for someone being run out of office. So I thought that was an odd detour, uh, but uh, anyway. That yeah, bo- okay. that bothered I, 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 I just want to say that bothered me when they um, started bringing in like the statements from uh, Russia and Iran, I think, and you know places that were sort of you know condemning the U.S. for for um, what happened on January sixth. It bothered me in part because these uh, anti-democratic figures around the world always get their messaging from um, the anti-American left. That's not new. That, 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 that happens in the absence of any wrongdoing. I had two thoughts on yesterday's proceedings, both of which make me very mad. Um, the first is that <clears throat> there was an interesting shift in tone, which suggested to me that, you know, the, what we all understand to be the case, that uh, acquittal is, um, is inevitable. What had been internalized by the managers, and they began to make a case, which I think you cannot avoid, which is that the psychological foundations in Trump's supporters for violence were laid in 2016 and had been reinforced for the for four years. Now, Republicans aren't going to respond to that message because they are in one way or another in various degrees complicit with that condition. It is nevertheless impossible to state the case as to how this happened without going back into that the psychological foundations that Donald Trump laid for political violence, one. Two, um, it ended with Jamie Raskin as answering questions that he, or asking questions of the jury that he had not himself answered. The most important of them is what was the president doing on January 6th between 2.26 p.m. and 5.40 p.m.? 2.26 p.m., Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund made an urgent request for National Guard troops for assistance. In the interim, a lot of people were hurt, some died, and Capitol Police, or Capitol and National Guard arrived to relief Capitol Police at 5.40 p.m. He can't answer that question. Nobody can answer that question until we have a definitive affirmation under oath by a witness to his conduct. And Democrats don't want to call witnesses because they have to legislate. 
you know, they have to prove their economic bona fides to voters, which means they have to pass a $2 trillion package and confirm near a Tandon. And that's what's really important. So we will never definitively close this chapter of American history because no one wants it closed. They want to just move on, get on to other business. Why? Um, I don't know why I have to care more about this than everybody else who keeps telling me how weighty the historical gravity of this issue is and what the profound threat to democracy is, and then just move on because we have to confirm near a Tandon. Um, well, listen, um, Mark Meadows, the chief of the last Trump chief of staff, went on Laura Ingram last night and he attempted to answer that question. Uh, or, you know, he offered an answer. He says, uh, Laura, when you start to talk about this president throughout the summer, continue to push and stand on the side of law enforcement as he does tonight, where he was trying to send in the National Guard to make sure that all the writing that was going on that it actually was quelled. He did the same thing on January the 6th. He didn't delay at all. And so for them to play for this narrative that's not based on fact really is just a sad day. We took immediate action. One of the things that is not has not been told yet is the fact that not only the president wanted to make sure everybody was safe, but he literally at the very first said, we need to make sure that they have the resources. That's not being told the fact that he wanted our National Guard to be on the ready for any civil unrest that might be there. And so he tweeted out a number of things as we were looking at some of uh, the unfold. What we now know happened actually was not as graphic as was laid out over the last couple of days because we were seeing little bits and snippets, but he condemned it and wanted to make sure that we respected law and order and was very forceful in that. So A, uh, you know what? It really wasn't that bad, says the White House Chief of Staff about the insurrection. And that it's all it's all selective editing that makes it look bad. Uh, B. Uh, Trump did uh, d- didn't delay and did want to make sure that everybody was safe and wanted the National Guard on the ready, and uh, that's what he wanted. Um, so, if the latter is true, where are they with their timeline? Why, why, why? They'll, yeah, why, they should why present that yeah. in their defense. They have an opportunity now to present a defense. And if what Meadows said last night is true, they will present that timeline as part of their defense. And I am guessing right now that's probably not going to be part of their defense. Um, and and the, the idea, I was actually really offended that he was saying, oh, it's not as bad as you think. That's the classic, like, who are you going to believe, you know, me or your lying eyes? I mean, it's like, it doesn't, it, we did all see that footage. It came from multiple angles, multiple sources, included footage inside the Capitol to, to downplay that and to diminish the violence that occurred is just as I mean, sorry, that's what we've been railing about, you know, Democrats doing about political violence all summer. You don't do that. That is not appropriate. The impeachment managers introduced something that Senator Ben Sass told Hugh Hewitt on his radio show, where he said that it was his understanding from firsthand or secondhand sources that Donald Trump was enjoying himself in the two hours and 14 minutes that are just a giant question mark here that are profoundly significant. And the the fact that no one wants that affirmed definitively under oath with penalty of perjury makes me insane. And everybody should be very offended by how we're just introducing this as hearsay and not following up on it. Well, at least that gives a, it, it offers an opening for the conspiracy theorizing to begin again, right? I mean, it, it instead of closing that door definitively by having people testify under oath to what the president was doing, it will it gives plausible deniability to people like Meadows and Trump to say, oh, you know, I really cared. I it, it really wasn't what they say. But there's, as you say, no, there's no evidence one way or the other. So people will fill that void with theorizing and and defensive remarks about what the president was doing. 
Look, it's all ridiculous. If they if if Trump had been doing responsible, sober things and sitting watching TV and saying this is terrible, we've got to do something, we would have known about it five seconds after he did that. While the while the narrative was growing that nothing was happening, I mean, it's not like people in this White House don't leak or the, this White House, the past White House, don't leak. We're hearing Mark Meadows say today, thirty six, thirty seven days after. Uh, after the after the riot uh, that Trump was, you know, like wanted the National Guard there. Want, it, you know, it doesn't either either he is just contemptibly lying um, or uh, he's been bizarrely remiss. And the Trump people have been bizarrely remiss in not in not laying out an exculpatory set of facts that say no he was you know he wanted to stop them and that when in fact one of the things that they can say after you know we all saw the tape the 447 tape where he says we love you go home you know it's a terrible thing that's happened they could say if they wanted to that you know this was a this was a crafted message intended to lower the temperature lower the volume speak to these people in a way that they would hear and get them to leave better than being nasty or being, you know, or being harsh or something like that. Now, that might be factitious, it might be preposterous, but that's an argument that you can make. No one is making any of these arguments. And they could, and they're not, but they could. I mean, Jared Kushner can call me at 11.30 and tell me what was going on in the Oval Office. He's no longer he's no longer a White House. Whoever it is, he what? So you have to presume, but not in a, not for conviction purposes. Apparently, you have to presume that what you're hearing, in the absence of co- contradictory information, that what you're hearing is at least partially accurate. But here's another and, weird thing: <laughs> Democrats don't want to call witnesses because they want to get on to legislating. Um, because impeachment ties up Senate business. You can't do anything else until impeachment is done unless Republicans consent to do other business alongside this sort of thing. And nobody thinks Republicans are going to do that. But why? Why do they want to rush through? I get that there's a political detriment here where they have to focus on Trump and they want to get away from Trump. Everybody wants to get away from Trump. But we have to move on from this so we can get along to passing a $2 trillion package and confirming bloggers from CAP. This doesn't make any sense. Tie up Senate business forever. (laughs) So you're saying... See, this is a great perspective. So you're saying the Republicans should insist on witnesses. Call everyone. As a means of paralyzing. Go nuts. Let's do this until June. Okay. You know, there there you have it. It is, is, Christy, we were talking earlier about, uh, before the show, about how that was the logic of what they were trying to do uh, in the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Right, Christine? Yes, there was there was a lengthy period of time where, as the hearings were continuing apace, uh, the the Democratic progressive activist left was saying, "We have to look into every single detail of this man's past. Like, we don't have enough information. The FBI should do a thorough investigation." I mean, I was kind of joking with you guys that like every single person he attended preschool with must be asked if you know they were given consent when he you know played uh, on the playground with them. I mean, the, the, it was an absurd overreach, especially. Because, you know, this is this is a game that's played with every nomination. Even if they'd spiked him, a new one would have come up. They would have played that same game. But the idea that they were on the side of the angels to insist on the most thorough investigation possible and that 
barring that he was an illegitimate person to be put on the court. That was an argument that was consistently made on the left for months and is still made by those who think he never should have been confirmed. So it's just odd to see it flip now. And, you know, now it's the Democrats saying we just have to move as quickly as possible and thorough investigation into a far more serious matter involving uh, political power. Uh, it's just interesting. The thing about they're not digging into what Trump was doing during and um, after uh, the, the, the attack on the Capitol is that it leaves them with this other argument that presents a very complicated hurdle, um, which is that it leaves them trying to prove that he was responsible for it on the at the start. And the difficulty there that, that sort of keeps coming up that no one squarely deals with is that he said things that were terrible. For a long time, he said things that were terrible, done things that were terrible. None of that was considered impeachable until the mob acted, right? That their actions then made his, what he did impeachable. And that is a, that is a very logical, problematic logical hurdle that they wouldn't face if they went into what was he doing during. See, I think that's a, that's a very, it's a, like a, a deep point, which is that, which is that, uh, yeah, what was it? What was it about every other day of the Trump presidency that didn't that didn't lead to this? If this was the nature of his rhetoric, um, I, I think it's I think it's an answerable point, which is that uh, which is that this was the one day of his presidency that he summoned a crowd of twenty five thousand people to the Capitol to protest another branch of government. So uh, we don't know what he would have done had he summoned them in twenty eighteen to do something or other. You know, it's it's like that. It just as it happens, it happened. On the basis of this occasion, this reason, this thing that happened—that that he that they were that they had been gulled into thinking that they could stop—you know. So, uh, but uh, it's a it's a it's a good point, and ultimately, some of what's going on here is a really classic uh, Washington fight that we haven't seen in in decades. Though it doesn't look like a fight, which is the Senate doesn't work for the House. The House has very few ways. The House, the impeachment itself is an imposition by the House on the Senate. The House acts in a way that takes over the the, the Senate. And, um, you know, for, for 200 years before the rise of the imperial presidency, I mean, it was less than 200 years, whatever, but um, the great the the classic joke in Washington was that uh, you know let's fight the real enemy the Senate say says a congressman or let's fight the real enemy the House says a senator uh, whether they're of the same party or not they have mu- very different interests they have very different uh, sponsor they have a very different political schedule different rules all of that and they don't like each other. And some of this is, as Noah says, you say, they want to get to the meat, right? They want to get to the, they want to get it done and, and pass things. And Chuck Schumer is the new majority leader, and he wants to claim this big victory. My guess is that Nancy Pelosi would be perfectly happy to let this trial go on until June. This is her white whale. Trump is her white whale. She would like to bag him. She would like to get him. Well, also the House can do whatever it wants. The House can pass bill after bill after bill. It's the Senate that's all tied up. And the quotes that we have from the Washington Post um, were to the effect of unnamed sources close to Biden, what have you, were that um, 
Democrats have a deficit, trust deficit among voters when it comes to the economy. They have to prove their bona fides now in order for this stuff to get rolling, to have an impact that is visible in 2022. And the longer this goes on, the less likely that becomes. Ah, well, you know, it is a, the whole thing is, 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 is a fascinating exercise in, uh, you know, in, in, in sort of the, the presumptions and pretensions of, of government uh, that, that we know that uh, jurors theoretically go into something saying, I am going to acquit indicates the true nature of this kind of um this kind of proceeding right it's not a legal proceeding it's a political proceeding we keep saying that and the, therefore there are no evidentiary standards ultimately it is uh, is the country so sickened by the person who's been impeached uh that uh two-thirds of their uh, representatives in the senate uh, find it necessary to expel them and you know what? It's now 240 years, and uh, there have been four impeachments, two of the same person, and it 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 doesn't happen. I mean, I've been thinking that you know what we what we've been seeing here from the beginning before Trump was elected, that uh, they would try to impeach him the minute that he got elected, and that impeachment was now since there would then be two impeachments, which is in fact what happened uh, in the last 20 years. Uh, or you know, a little more than twenty years. That impeachment would now be just a thing that presidents have to go. There'll be one impeachment every presidency, uh, as long as the balance of power shifts in the House against the president's party, and there'll be one. And now I, I don't know. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that you would look back on these last two impeachments, uh, you know, from the perspective of twenty of you know twenty twenty five twenty twenty four. Let's say if some of the Republicans take the Congress, maybe they'd want to do it. But let's say 2026, 2027, something like that. Do you look back on this and say, well, that was really worth it? It was really, it was really, you know, I'm, I mean, you could say morally, I'm glad we did it to Trump. But if you say, well, this is now a kind of um, possible political tool in the arsenal of political tools, is it a good political tool? I mean, I, I think it probably it probably revs up the opposition as much as it as it stimulates the base. Is 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 my sense. Um, but guys, I want to uh, step back for a second and talk to you about that great podcast that I have been recommending to you now for a while. Uh, Post Corona with Dan Senor. Uh, which you can get at uh, the Apple, the, uh, the you know the Apple app, uh, podcast app, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your your podcasts. Um, so Dan's podcast focuses on what the world will be like post Corona, and he's had on Adam Grant, the industrial psychologist. He had on uh, Billy Bean, the uh, the baseball genius, to talk about the future of sport. Um, extensive deep dive into what's going to happen to New York uh, after the virus, why why Israel's virus uh, program has been, a vaccine program has been so wildly effective, uh, Neil Ferguson on the history of, of COVID uh, and of, of, uh, of pandemics and what this is really like. And uh, his new one, which comes out today, uh, uh, he spends an hour with John Dickerson of 60 Minutes, former host of Face the Nation, uh, who uh, whose book, 
the hardest job in the world is about the American presidency. And therefore, the subject of this podcast will be, will the presidency, the executive branch, be transformed in the wake of the pandemic? In what way? How could it happen? What kind of powers might the presidency and the executive branch arrogate to themselves in, in its wake? Or what kind of backlash will there be to executive power um, if things don't go well from here on in, as they did not go particularly well for the past year, right? So uh, John's <clears throat> a funny, interesting, clever guy, delightful to listen to, uh, you know, has been uh, writing and broadcasting on this, uh, on Washington and this subject for 20 years. I'm sure it's, a, I haven't heard it yet, but I'm sure it's a fantastic conversation. So please get yourself subscribed to Dan Senor's post-corona podcast. Uh, you can get it everywhere you hear podcasts and, uh, and you will thank me. Um, so it appears that the rubber is hit meeting the road. The chickens are coming home to roost and the, uh, the long arm of uh, the, the arc of justice is bending toward uh, is bending toward the arc of, uh, let's say, retributive justice is bending toward uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, who uh, whose chief of staff uh, went before a, a, a meeting of uh, uh, Democrats or Democrat committee investigating what, what's what's going on in New York in relation to the nursing home crisis and said in an absolutely jaw-dropping admission uh, that they were afraid to release the numbers because they thought the Trump administration was coming after them. These are the numbers of New Yorkers who were returned to nursing homes after they had been in the hospital with corona, thus infecting other people and leading to this absolute horror in the in the nursing homes in New York State. Um she basically said, uh, we, we, we did hide the numbers from you. We hid the numbers from everybody because we didn't want to give the Trump administration ammunition. I'm not sure that I've ever seen a gun smoke. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's like, uh, you know, I don't know. I've never, it's, it's great. It's, it's, it, you know, this is it. Like there's, there's nowhere to go from, from here. She said they did it. Cuomo's, you know, closest date said they did it. And her, Excuse is that we did it for naked partisan reasons to keep us from getting attacked politically by by somebody that we don't like. Uh, similarly, her apology was was nakedly partisan. It was an apology to Democrats. Sorry, sorry, we we put you in this position. Not an apology to the to New Yorkers, to families, to to, to the country for for giving wrong data. It was it was a it was a completely like you know transactional political apology. Anyway, it's uh, it's 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 stunning, and it'll be interesting to see what happens now. I mean, there are <clears throat> you actually have Democrats in New York State who are as frightened of Andrew Cuomo, generally speaking, as Republicans have been frightened of Donald Trump, um, and for m- many of the same reasons that he's a bully and he's vindictive and he'll do stuff to you, but you are seeing people issuing statements, Alessandro Biaggi, a, a state senator from the Bronx, uh, various other people issuing statements saying, how dare you, how could you do this, there needs to be a fuller investigation, um, you know, people are now starting to call for censure, impeachment, and removal, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a very, 
serious that this is the sort of thing can blow over um, because in the end Cuomo's this case that Cuomo made with unbelievable vulgarity you know that it's like who cares where they died they died it's terrible they died uh, but it doesn't you know but we never said that uh, there were fewer people who died so everybody who died died and that's terrible um, but I mean he could he could somehow back pushed against the wall say uh you know we we were putting the best face on something because we were in an existential uh, struggle and a panic and an existential struggle with Donald Trump who wanted to destroy America and maybe he can get away with it I don't know okay but who who's going to put back him into that corner because it's not going to be the media I mean one of the one of the sort of fallouts of, of this revelation of this phone call for those of us especially here on the podcast who've been following how the media turned Andrew Cuomo into a hero. There's nothing about this. Like CNN in particular, where he did these, you know, jocular interviews with his brother, where no tough questions were asked. You know, the, the, he was held up as a model of how to deal with the virus. And he, you know, won prizes and wrote books and got a lot of money for him. And the media never questioned that. And if they don't question him now, it's proof of what a lot of us have been saying about whether or not you should trust the mainstream media when it comes to what they're telling you about the pandemic. Because some of the stuff might be true. Some of it might be cover for a Democratic politician whom they want to see uh, maintained as, as the hero to Trump's villain. Yeah, a lot of this is <clears throat> the press will defend its actions as though it was just reflective reflecting this cult that had built up around Andrew Cuomo in the earliest days of the pandemic in March and April. But that's just simply not the case. They were as much image makers and myth makers as they were responding to the public's adoration for his take charge attitude and comforting manner, according to U.S. News and World Reports, and his, uh, you know, uh, tinged with empathy, articulate and consistent briefings, according to the New York Times, um, that's the sort of thing that builds this cult of personality around Andrew Cuomo. And all this was available to everybody who was paying critical attention to him as late as or as early as late April. The nursing home disaster was visible to everybody in late April. We wrote about it. The AP by August was talking about missing numbers. And, you know, it took Tish James until January to bring something resembling charges that they can report on. But in the interim, all this stuff was known to the public, and yet this cult of personality around him was still very pervasive, and the press was still very complicit in it, and indeed, um, creators of this sort of thing. So their their defense of themselves is going to be, well, we're just chronicling events here. But no, you were making events. You know, I, 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 I want to give myself a credit for a certain amount of prescience, because I'm pretty sure we started talking about Cuomo and and the pandemic in April probably uh, on the on the podcast here, and I I'm sure that on the very first day uh, that we did this when we were talking about his uh, celebrated uh, briefings, I said I must have said because I said it a hundred times, this Cuomo's reputation cannot survive himself. There is no way that this isn't going to turn on him at some point because he's a goon and a crazy person. <clears throat> and a horrible person and a monster and a liar and an incredibly effective political player uh, who governs much more by fear than even even Trump has. And, uh, and so uh, in the end, his own uh, nature will come out. And so I, I was right about that. And I'm, I, I take credit for this only because 
Uh, it was like taking crazy pills here in May or June when people were saying, you know, look at that. It's amazing how he says, you know, we're New York strong. It's love. What really matters is the love. And you'll show your family love if you don't see your grandmother. You'll show people it's loving to do that and all that. And and that people who have been covering Andrew Cuomo for 30 years uh, and who have been on the receiving end, as I have, from nasty phone calls from Andrew Cuomo, that they could report this as though uh, as though it weren't like listening to, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, I mean, a villain in a Bond movie talking about love um, was kind of astonishing. And he, he, he was never, it was never going to work out well for him. If it hadn't been the nursing home thing, which is, of course, it would have been something else. Because uh, he, he's the guy who said last week, in response to this, if you remember, he said, you know, we, we were dealing with what we had to deal with at the time. Uh, you know, it's like what Mike Tyson said, you know, everybody has plans until I punch you in the face. And remember, I said this last, that's not what Mike Tyson said. What Mike Tyson said was everybody has plans until, they get, until you get punched in the face. Cuomo is such an alpha aggressor that he can't, that he can only think about this in terms of whom he's punching. And in the end, he's now decked himself. I I don't know what the end result of this is going to be, but it's bad politically. I mean, it's bad. It's bad criminally. Well, why? I mean, the... Well, according to what we saw in the New York Post, why they were hiding the numbers is because they were afraid that it would be part of a criminal indictment. I mean, this was this was expressed, this was said out loud. I, I, as you said, there there doesn't there cannot be a more smoking gun. The gun is is on fire. They're, they're admitted. They're confessing here. Sorry, Democrats. We didn't want to put you in trouble because we didn't want to be indicted. Ah. Uh. Well, that would be interesting. God knows. I mean, Tish James isn't isn't bringing. You know, she's not making a a political point here. What well, she's alleging is 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 potentially prosecutable activity. Well, you mean on the grounds of on the grounds of uh, deliberate deception, signing documents that uh, affirm, to the best of my legal knowledge, that what I've put down here is true and correct. Is that is that what you mean? Well, possibly. I, I I don't know exactly what the charges yeah. would be okay. brought against. I'm sure yeah. a creative prosecution could get pretty yeah. expansive with this, but that seems like the most yeah. glaring, you know, depositions yeah. and what have you and perjury charges, perhaps. But look, what does it say about us? So we, so, you know, in the wake of a terrible uh, crisis, <clears throat> you know, you want a strong leader. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so people and Trump, Mr. Strength, the strength, strong guy, the guy who was so strong, was <clears throat> in constant and weak and vacillating and shifting and uh, an unreliable narrator. And so there was this room for a strong leader that people could somehow, you know, uh, take comfort in, right? Uh, uh, you know, an anchor, a rock in a, you know, in the middle of a, of a terrible storm. And uh, and so Cuomo was the guy who was doing eleven forty five in the morning press conferences because he was in the hardest hit state. Um, but what is it? What He's is not it? in the hardest hit state? By the he way, he was then. I he am in then. the hardest hit state. It was then. 
Yeah, but the reason why I'm in the hardest hit state is because New York, New New Jersey, Jersey. Connecticut all took their cues from Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo was perceived to be the 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 most effective leader in the situation, and all of his policies were emulated in the tri-state area, and we all suffered as a result. I mean, you know, uh, and then you get this moment, and I I don't know how we'll we'll see how people write about this or what we know about it you know, historically 10, 15 years from now, but uh, the, the use of these emergency powers, which, uh, which is uh, very unusual, has historically been unbelievably unusual, right? I, I sort of remember a couple of things in the, in the, in, in the 20 teens, uh, particularly uh, when the mayor of Boston, because they were looking for the, for the uh, marathon bomber, sort of like shut the city down. He announced he was using his pet, like streets were shut down, buses were and people couldn't drive. You know, it was a sort of like moment of, and it was like, really, can he do that? Well, well under what circumstances? Uh, but you know, like you could, uh, that stuff didn't happen except when there was like a natural disaster, right? Or uh, there was no such thing. And then I think that uh, we're we're in a terrifying position now because it is now thinkable for all these politicians to say. Oh, something's happening. All the businesses must close. Cuomo himself, in the uh, preceding a, a snowstorm in New York uh, in 2016 or something, shut the subway system down, which had never been done before in 110 years or something like that. Once you do things like this and there's no blowback, either legally or, or whatever, um, it becomes easier to do it again and again. My fear with guys like Cuomo and every governor going forward is... Um, it's fun. It's fun to shut, you know, it's like I've shut the highway down and then there's a shot and you can see there are no cars on the highway, like in some special effect in a movie. And, you know, that's power. And, uh, you know, how, how often are these powers going to be invoked after the pandemic? You know, we know now we live in a time where if if two inches of snow are going to fall, people now, you know, sort of like close schools down and close, close uh, public transport down and stuff like that. That would never have happened I, 60, 70 years ago. You know, just on the point about it being fun, I, I just have to, have to say, because this is what makes the the, the new revelations, not, not, not revelations, the, the proof of the, of what we've, what was, what we've known for a while now, what makes it so particularly disgusting is that no one had more fun. No one enjoyed this pandemic more than Andrew Cuomo. Absolutely no one. He was there every day on TV. He became a celebrity. He got an Emmy. He put out a book. He put out posters. He had he had props. Um, I mean, this was this was an extraordinary. He was the Gallagher. He was the Gallagher of the pandemic. He was a props yeah. comedian. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The carrot top. Right. Yeah. So he had fun, and it's fun. It's like ah, uh, you know, maybe twenty two and a half percent of restaurants capacity. You know, there's a, a, a there's a portrait in the beginning of. Um, uh, I mean, it's like it's like these stories about you know when Lyndon Johnson is is picking bombing targets in in the Vietnam War. What did he know about bombing targets? I know he's the commander in chief, but what does he know about bombing targets? It's like the ooh, can I pick a bombing target? Let's go there. You know that, that, that you know they could really that could really be a good okay, Mr. President. You know. Do, is this what we want? I mean, I, we—I I don't know how we're going to restrain it, and why, and 
or we're not going to restrain it because because the people like it. Well, that well, some people like it, right? I mean, the well, question just is on job approval ratings, yeah, which is the only metric we really have, right? I, I mean, that's right. So they like it because they like a you know. I don't know. We're this is not good, is what I'm saying. It's not good that uh, that people are rewarded for for deploying and using emergency powers that they they then misuse for the purposes of their own uh, aggrandizement, and because they start getting uh, jazzed by the feeling of controlling entire industries with a flick of their finger. Uh, the consequences are going to be severe, and God only knows what that severity will you know will be made up of. Um, but it's enough to make you feel a little crazy. And in 2021, mental health is finally a subject that is on everybody's agenda. Because so many people are struggling right now and aren't feeling like their normal selves. The therapy helps. And it doesn't have to be sitting around just talking about your feelings. I mean, what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want or need it to be. You can talk privately to someone if you feel like you're not dealing well with stress or if you're having relationship issues. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. See if it's for you, because you are your greatest asset. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and commentary listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash commentary. That's betterhelp.com slash commentary. Um, so... Uh, Cuomo gets it, and uh, it appears the Lincoln Project, the consulting group that started in the wake of never-Trump political consultants uh, deciding that the Republican Party, it had to work to destroy the Republican Party from the inside by by running campaigns against Trump and then also running campaigns and helping to run campaigns against uh, Republican incumbents who supposedly, you know, uh, abetted and aided and abetted Trump. Um, Rick Wilson, Stuart Stevens, John Weaver, Steve Schmidt, Reed Galen, uh, and we now have the big revelation that John John Weaver, uh, uh, Republican political consultant, uh, uh, though we, somebody who kept quitting the Republican Party in a rage, it should be said, um, uh, long before he quit it over Trump, he quit it over McCain, he quit it over you know, uh, and so um, that he uh, you know he was. Uh, behaved uh, in a wildly inappropriate uh, fashion toward uh, teenage boys in, in, in a teenage and and uh, and very young men uh, you know who seeking jobs from from him and then there, the question turned to what does the Lincoln project know and when does it know it <clears throat> and um, sort of like Andrew Cuomo I'm afraid I gotta say uh, the true colors of the Lincoln project started coming out the real true colors start coming out. Uh, as they got into a little bit of, uh, of of hot water here. Allow me to really go off for a minute because I kept my mouth shut on this issue for the better part of 12 months. And I have some thoughts. First of all, as I've said before, you don't get a lot of credit for predicting the future. 
Um, intuition is great, but if you're if you just sort of landed on the right spot without any evidence, then you know good, you're lucky. You're not necessarily prescient. Um, but the Lincoln Project's True Colors were available to anybody who is remotely interested. Um, it was, um, I believe, I think, hang on, let me just get the actual date here. Uh, okay, so by October of last year, we had some press reports um, indicating, late mid-October of last year, indicating that all this money, and they were raising tens of millions of dollars from a lot of pro-democratic groups and a lot of democratic grassroots donors, that a lot of this money was going into the pockets of these people and the firms that they owned. It wasn't going, and they were they were doing, you know, press, uh, very, you know, media savvy media buys, like buying an advertisement on Fox News in Washington, D.C. for the sake that only Donald Trump would see it, got a lot of press. And they were all their members were all over media, you know, telling Democratic voters exactly what they wanted to hear about how irredeemable, irredeemable the Republican Party was. None of us, to my knowledge, have ever ca- uh, cashed a check that was signed by Steve Bannon. But members of the Lincoln Project had. Um, none of us, uh, to my knowledge, had ever, you know, uh, been unceremoniously defenestrated from a Republican campaign for incompetence, but members of the Lincoln Project had. Um, one of the episodes that I've never talked about on this podcast, but is, you know, perhaps fueling a little bit of indignation on my part, was an episode in which I remarked, rather frustrated, about how Joe Biden responded to Amy Coney Barrett's um, nomination by saying, you'll know my position on court packing the day after the election. That to me was contemptuous and unacceptable and flippant to talk about our institutions that, that way and to you know, demonstrate such uh, disregard for voters. And the press obviously should have pressed very hard on that. Reed Galen, who is one of the um, Lincoln Project's members, jumped all over me, very outraged by my failure to remain myopically fixated on Donald Trump and all his evil works and talked about how you were essentially abetting right-wing terrorists, to which Steve Schmidt, who is a, a former McCain campaign guy and um, you know had become the, the head of this organization, decided to jump all over both me and Matt Lewis and called us Nazis. We're Vichy collaborators because the rhetoric always had to amp up. The rhetoric always had to go to the next level to an irresponsible state because that's what brought in the big bucks. That's what kept him on Andrea Mitchell. That's what made him a star on MSNBC. And that's what lined his pockets. And those of us who were critical of that sort of thing, we didn't get the big bucks, but we still maintained our principles. And all these guys get credit for being principled when they were pieces of trash and everyone knew it. And those of us who spoke out about it got a lot of crap for it, but we were right. You know, we haven't. You haven't even. We haven't gone into the the, the secondary detail that is really the part where they are they are courting their own uh, doom, uh, which is that uh, there was apparently a uh, conflict inside the organization uh, with uh, with its uh, leading female member Jennifer Horn, uh, who resigned uh, after the. Uh, the John Weaver revelations uh, and their response to her resignation was to engage in character assassination on Twitter, like open character assassination, writing about her the way they talked about Susan Collins or about, or about Trump or something like that. You know, that she funny that she would say she resigned when she came to us demanding uh, this amount of money per month and this, amount, this, this kind of bonus, uh, which she says is not true. But then came the big thing. The big thing is that there was a conversation, a private conversation between Jennifer Horn and a reporter uh, 
at a at a at a website, um, and apparently somebody at the Lincoln Project hacked into that person's Twitter, uh, hacked into Jennifer Horn's DMs. Must have somebody must have known her password on Twitter for some reason, and then printed the DM conversation between Jennifer Horn and this reporter. Put it on it's the official Lincoln Project Twitter feed. Put it on the Twitter feed. At which point, two minutes later, George Conway, member of the Lincoln Project, tweeted out, uh, this is uh, likely a felony or something like that. Uh, Take this down immediately. Now, why he didn't DM the Lincoln Project to do it privately rather than publicly, and so that we saw all this happening in real time, uh, I don't know. But then they deleted this uh, conversation, um, which they thought was somehow uh, revelatory of her perfidy or something like that. And basically uh, showing, they're showing psychotic judgment and uh, it would be, they may continue to raise money. Who knows? Who knows? Democrats apparently will throw money at anything anywhere. So, so Republicans do, but I mean, so they, they gave them $90 million to do nothing basically, except, you know, make rageful ads so maybe they can keep doing it, but um, I don't think any responsible person will want to do business with these people. Like you can't do business with people like this. And there was talk of them uh, becoming a media company. Remember, right? There's there's uh, some deal in the works uh, for them to produce, you know, streaming content somewhere. Uh, to yeah. my knowledge, they're they're consulting in Israel as we speak. For yeah. For Gidon Sar, for Gidon Sar, yes, they are. But I mean, so what? I mean, by the way, there's not a lot of money in that. So, I mean, not like ninety million dollars, and you know, in, in donations or whatever it was they raised. That each of them, I think, as somebody said, that you know, so you giving the Lincoln Project money helped uh, built uh, Steve Schmidt a house in Utah. So, congratulations on that. Congratulations on the fair use of your 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 money. Uh, it's really. Uh, it's really great. I'm fine with me. You know, if you want to waste it on them, so instead of wasting it on yourself, that's that's totally fine. You know, uh, Rick Wilson, the, uh, the the other major member of the Lincoln Project, wrote a book called "Everything Trump Touches Dies." The idea being that anyone who is uh, gets complicit near Trump, involved with Trump, something like that, will will find their reputations and all that uh, soiled and destroyed. What if what if that turns out to be true about certain types of never Trumpers, like Rick Wilson, like this? This is what's happening with the Lincoln Project could be, you know, is his could be his career destruction uh, finally and eternally. And what would be interesting about that is it comes because he went, took this turn. Well, what's happening he took this turn into Trump, into anti-Trumpism that led to 90 million dollars in bookings that led him to be part of an organization that thinks it's OK to hack someone's uh, DMs and to talk about uh, personnel, you know, to defend yourself against a partner being accused of a phoebophilia uh, and, and, and incre- you know, by saying, I didn't know, nobody knew, no one knew anything, and, and you're evil for even asking the question, that's not, not, not good. And it, it's what's happening to them is um, it's a slew of things, the very type of things <clears throat> that they have been screaming about um, being connected to Trump. I mean, it's the bullying, it's the lining your pockets, it's the surrounding yourself with um, um, unscrupulous, disgusting people and covering it up. It's um, it's escalating the outrage machine. These are all these are all the it's norm breaking. These are all the accusations okay. against Trump. Absolutely. 
So let's let's move on and talk uh, about the lead article in our uh, March issue, um, which we just closed yesterday, and which will be available fully online today and Monday, and then it'll be in your mailbox uh, if you're a print subscriber in uh, ten days' time. Around uh, Christine, our own Christine Rosen, accepting crime, abolishing punishment. Liberals are falling into a political trap of their own devising, and they're going to reverse decades of safety along the way. Christine, tell the people about your piece. <laughs> well, it actually, like like all the the best pieces, uh, the most fun to write, at least if you're a writer, it started as a conversation that we were having, John, about the homicide spike in cities, um, large cities and actually medium sized cities across the country and how a lot of the reports coming in reminded you of, you know, kind of New York City in the 60s and 70s, the crime spike and, and also people's general anxiety and fear about how crime was increasing and the sense of safety eroding. Um, so I wanted to take a look at at, at make sure that the spike was real. It is. It's it's real and it's kind of horrifying once you actually break it out city by city and look at the number, the homicide spikes in different cities like New York, Los Angeles, um, smaller cities as well are having this uh, same uh, murder rate spike all in the wake, most all in the wake of the George Floyd killing last spring. So it, it's a bloody, bloody summer in many of these cities across the country. Um, and the reaction has been um, in part because the message of the Black Lives Matter movement has been uh, to you know, either abolish the police or defund police. There hasn't been a way for a, for a, a strong response that that embraces law enforcement's role in protecting communities and people in them uh, to respond to this this spike. In fact, what we've seen in, in city after city is a rollback of the kind of special units that take guns off the street, for example, um, that that actually have cops on a beat, walking in on the sidewalk, stopping people, seeing what's going on. Uh, cops are pulling back; they're pretty vocal about doing that, or they're being the special units are being defunded by progressive mayors. So. All of that happened pretty in a pretty concentrated period of time. But coming before that for a while has, has been a building decarceration movement that is very keen on um, finding alternatives to imprisonment. And these aren't people who are just saying, uh, as a lot of our libertarian friends, I think, correctly argue, you know, nonviolent offenders with a, with a small amount of drugs on them shouldn't be in prison for 10 years. Like they, that argument, a lot of people are, have embraced and, and accept. These are people who literally think prisons are a form of slavery. Um, there are signs posted in my own uh, home city here of D.C. that say just that by activists. What there, I have two examples that, that came after we closed the piece, but I wanted to just uh, cite them because they're just from this past week. Uh, Chisa Boudin, who is the uh, D.A. in um, San Francisco, was just asked recently in a conversation with community leaders about uh, the uptick, uh, not just in homicides, but in other things like burglaries with a virtual community safety forum. <laughs> and he said his response to why this, this increase had happened was, quote, it appears as if people who used to earn their living doing this kind of illegal auto burglary and targeting of tourists are now moving inside. And what struck me about that phrase and its perfection, because he's a progressive prosecutor who's argued for not prosecuting low-level crimes, including low-level, uh, you know, felonious type assaults, is that he thinks he described people stealing cars and robbing tourists as a way to earn a living. That's crime as a way to earn a living. And so he's really upset that now they're actually going into people's homes because before they just kept it on the street. So that, but that mindset that that's, that's a legitimate way to earn a living and shouldn't be punished it perfectly encapsulates 
this new um, kind of progressive prosecutor that wants to, to do this. The other example I'll give you is someone who's running for city council in New York, um, a, a woman named uh, Tiffany Caban of Queens. She has a very uh, lengthy thing about her vision for public safety, which also encapsulates the decarceration movement's uh, effort not to imprison people. Here's her example of how communities don't need uh, law enforcement or imprisonment to stop violence. Here's her, here's her example of how she would do things. A person is beat up, suffers a broken rib, and is robbed of his wallet. First, his needs are heard and affirmed, and he works with trained staff to develop services and a healing plan. Then when he's ready, he participates in restorative justice circles with the person who harmed him and their respective support systems. He asks questions, he gets answers, and they develop an accountability and consequences plan. This sounds like what you do in um, a preschool when somebody steals someone else's toy or or hits them on the playground. This is not how you deal with with uh, violent murderers, rapists, the assaulters. This is not a way to keep people safe. So the peace, just that there are a million of these examples, but between the spike in violent crime, the embrace of decarceration and defund the police, and progressive prosecutors who refuse to... Uh, to prosecute even violent crime, we're seeing a return to a mindset that in the 60s absolutely decimated the Democratic Party's ability to even talk about safety and crime. And uh, we might be headed down that path again. I mean, I think that's the the key political point is that uh, that Democrats are rushing headlong into uh, a a view of uh, police departments and policing that uh, that arose in the in the in the early years of the of the crime spike uh, in the United States, the three decade crime spike from sixty four to ninety four, um, and that uh, basically tilted toward, as people thought at the time, uh, a greater degree of sympathy for the rights of criminals than for the safety of of uh, ordinary law abiding people. Uh, you mentioned Tiffany Caban. Uh, what's interesting about Tiffany Caban and this, you know, unbelievable description of how crime is to be responded to in in a in an encounter group. Um, Tiffany Caban came within 200 votes of being the the district attorney uh, in Queens, uh, which is you know one. Of, I think it's the uh, the lar- the largest county in the United States, I believe, by population, or the second largest. Uh, she lost by 290 votes or something like that after an incredibly long count and recount uh, uh, thing. And she could have been the lead prosecutor in Queens. Prosecutor who believe doesn't who believes that if you are if you are uh, a victim of, of crime, you need to have a reparative session with your with the person who who did you violence. So. This is a very important piece, uh, and it lays out uh, something uh, bizarrely hopeful for conservatives, which is that uh, Democrats are going to suffer from their uh, overreach here. Um, But of course, is also horrible because it means that we are going, if if I'm right, and Christine's right, it means we're going into a period of of high crime with low response, which of course only then just makes everything worse. So it's a great piece. commentarymagazine.com right now uh, it's sitting right there accepting crime abolishing punishment and we got a lot more uh, goodies to throw your way um, from the issue uh, in the coming uh, hours and, and days uh, so please have a wonderful weekend happy Valentine's Day uh, and we will be back to you on Monday 
for John. Not, not Monday. I'm sorry. I am sorry. We are not going to be here Monday. Monday is President's Day, and we're not going to be here. We will be back on Tuesday with another wonderful edition of the Commentary Magazine podcast. So for Christine, Noah, and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.